I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you. When I was, um, when I was in college, just having converted out of a culturally Jewish background, I, I sort of fell in love with a guy named Soren Kierkegaard and, and had classes that were um, filled with him, not knowing anything about him. And he wrote this book called The Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. The Purity of Heart is to will one thing. I don't think our culture has any idea what to do with that phrase. I, think, I mean, I've been praying more and more in my own heart, and I think we see it everywhere. We are the distracted culture, right? We are the multitasking, the ADD. We have millions of different stories going on in our heads that we're trying to live according to we have many, many gods. We are, we are not atheists. We are polytheists, right? We have so many things to serve and to worship and to try to get our attention. We have the marketing story, right? We're bombarded by advertisements. Buy this, consume this, you'll be happy. We have the cynical story, those who are in power, those who are after power, they're, they're corrupt. We don't need to trust our institutions or authority. We, have, we live according to maybe one part pleasure story. We're after hedonism and, and trusting our feelings. One part American dream story, right? Success is getting to college and then grad school and then a nice family and a picket fence and kid, two and a half kids and a dog. And I don't, it's not so much that we buy into one of those stories necessarily. It's that we're not sure which one to trust. We're not sure even which one we're living according to from day to day. Which story do you trust? What story is your life in? We were just watching uh, episode three of Star Wars, and it was fascinating, I thought, to see Anakin's sort of fall and demise. And some of those crux moments were when he considered the possibility that the story that the Jedi's told was not true, that maybe they're not as good as they said. Maybe the dark side of the Force actually is doing the same thing that the Jedi's are doing, going after power for the good of others. It was a problem of his faith in the storyteller. And so that's what I want us to consider. What story are we in? How coherent is the story that our life is in? And what sort of faith should it look like if we find ourselves in the Christian story? What sort of reliance or trust of the storyteller should we have? So that's what we're going to do. We see these amazing examples uh, in the second half of Hebrews 11, of faith, it's amazing examples of believers and the story that they were convinced of, despite what they saw or felt. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, you are good and holy, and you have drawn us near. It's something we can take so easily for granted. But we thank you, Lord, that you've brought us this day to your presence, and we pray that you would speak to us by your word, just as you promised that your Holy Spirit would 
convict those who are hard-hearted and comfort those who are heartbroken. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 11 started off with the famous definition of faith. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. And last time when I was looking at that passage, trying to get at a couple misconceptions of faith, and we're going to look at some others today. The biggest, I think, is faith seems like this irrational leap into the dark. Whereas when you look at that definition of faith, it's actually not an irrational leap. It's actually the most dependable and trustworthy thing you can do, which is to risk everything worldly for the sake of God. That's not a crazy leap. That is being convicted of who God is, assured of what you don't yet have, believing what you do not yet see. And so it's trying to see that as an example of what we see at the cross. The eyes of sight look at the cross and see total defeat, humiliation, and hopelessness. But the eyes of faith look at the cross and see victory, see God's love in action in the place of sinners. And so I want to ask, thinking of those um, definitions of faith, I want to ask what kind of Faith should ours look like if we believe in this grand Christian story. And I'm mentioning story because thinking about this passage, I was just struck by how all of these characters find themselves in a story bigger than themselves. Much, much bigger than themselves, and we see their faith in that on display. All right, so let's ask what sort of faith ought that to be for us. And so first, relatively simply and straightforward, I think we see faith that acts. It acts according to the story that it's in. It is active. And though we're talking about an eternal promise, often we think, oh, faith and talk about eternity and salvation, it's going to make us less active, it's going to make us care less about the world, Um, we're going to sort of withdraw into our uh, little caves so we can just hunker down and get through it. That is not what you see at all. And that's not what you see throughout Scripture, right? We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And so, in our passage, we have examples of, in 33, those who conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, those who blessed future generations, blessed nations of the earth, led Israel out of Egypt into salvation. Faith is active. In, uh, in theological speak, if you are justified, then you are also being sanctified. There's no such thing as someone who has been justified who has not been sanctified. And so this sort of faith that has a conviction of things not seen, it's striking to me that it is faith in things that cannot be seen, but it is faith that is seen. It should be on display, demonstrable. So James 2, talking also about Abraham, says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And I was reminded by this comment that N.T. Wright makes about first century faith in the resurrection. And he's addressing 
this common critique that faith and religion, especially about the resurrection and about eternal life, is just an opium of the masses, meaning it's just uh, a sort of tonic to keep you where you are. It's going to keep you in your place, and it's not going to want you to do any active, uh, active revolt, active uh, concern for the world. N.T. Wright says it's actually the exact opposite. Because what you see in the first century and for Christians throughout history is that what could be more revolutionary and unstoppable than saying to the Caesars of the world, whatever you do to me, whatever sort of torture and mocking and humiliation you come up with, I will still live according to the king of kings, according to a world of love and justice and holiness. What could be more active than that? More unstoppable. And so I think what we should see here is that this sort of faith is actually more active because it cannot be paralyzed by what it sees. Does that make sense? It is faith that is more active because it cannot be paralyzed by what it sees. It trusts in something better than what it can see. What it has in the present moment. So Abraham believed the promise about Isaac and his generations and believed the command of God. Wasn't seemingly able to reconcile how they could exist, coexist, but was going to trust God anyway. So Joseph talks about the exodus, care for his bones, despite what he sees. So Moses, seeing the benefits, the fleeting pleasures of sin, as our passage says, of being an Egyptian, but instead chooses Yahweh in faith, chooses God in faith. It's striking that actually when we have a conviction of something not seen, it's more active. And I was reminded, and if there are, if you remember your, your high school English class, or maybe you're in high school English now, you remember Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte's novel? Well, there's an amazing Jane Eyre is a Christian woman, um, and she is in this total crisis of faith. She's fallen in love with Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester's fallen in love with her, but he's married, and there's a whole crazy backstory. This is what she says, though, in her crisis of faith. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? You get what she's saying? There's no point in having a conviction if when it's tested, you're not going to follow. And in fact, if you are just living according to the story of what you can see, the story according to what the world is feeding you, what you trust, the feelings that you are after, you don't really need convictions at all, right? You're just going to pursue what you can see and what you can get right now. But faith in Christ, faith in this 
story of an eternal promise is conviction and assurance that is active. That is opposed to sight, not reason. And it withstands the testing. It withstands the temptation. It is for such moments as those. And so we ought to ask ourselves, why are we so beholden to sight? So beholden to what we can have, what we can buy. It's striking to think of Jesus' command to when you give to the poor, do it in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. So in secret, so hidden from your own self-concern, you're not even aware. All right, so faith is active. It's not paralyzed by what it can see. It's actually more active than we think. And because of the kind of story that the Christian story is, the second point I want to look at is it dignifies. This sort of faith dignifies the actors. That phrase, did you catch it towards the end of the passage? Of whom the world was not worthy. What incredible dignity is being said about those who have this sort of faith. A transcendent sort of dignity. A dignity that says, if you are only after the things you can see, only after the world can provide, you are selling yourself short. Because you were made, created for one thing. Communion with God. And so we need to ask, what, what story are we worthy of? What story do we act as if we're worthy of? We need to pray that we would be people who are not worthy of this world. Verse 25 gets at this. Lots of, lots of parts of this passage get at this, but talking about Moses and the something better that is being offered, verse 25 and 26, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, probably referencing just the anointed one, the Messiah that would have been Israel, and then Jesus. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. And the language there is very intentional, if you caught it. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What is better? Persecution for Christ's sake or what you can get in the world. The treasures of the world. Moses endured because he saw the one who was invisible. Rahab saw that something better was offered. Rahab, who was a prostitute, didn't, didn't trust the story that her nation was telling her and trusted the story of Israel, the might of the God of Israel. And sometimes you, ha you have in this passage um, cases in which the promise that they end up actually receiving is better according to to what they can see. Sometimes it comes to fulfillment 
before them, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's important that we see both. What I mean by that is, so there are examples like the Israelites cross the Red Sea. That's wonderful. They see the Egyptians drown. That is a, uh, something that they sing about for thousands of years later. We see that there are people who are raised from the dead, who stop the mouths of lions, who quench the power of fire. Those are probably referring back to Daniel. But there's something that that section on the resurrection uh, points out. It says in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. So they got to see the better promise that was offered right in front of them. It was according to their sight. But then it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. This is a very frustrating translation, not because I, I know my Greek well at all, but because simply the word release in verse 35 and the word life at the end of that verse is the same word, and it's the word for resurrection. So I don't know why they confused us. So it says, really, some were tortured, refusing to accept one type of resurrection because they were waiting for a better resurrection. Which says what? Even the resurrection that the women received at the hands of Elijah and Elisha, and then we can think, of course, of Lazarus with Jesus, even those temporal resurrections, if you will, are only signs and pointers to the better resurrection. So even what they got to see by their sight, even what was according to their sight, was only a shadow of the substance. And so can you imagine saying to Lazarus, he's been dead for four days, Jesus comes, he hears about what Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he raises him, and then you say to Lazarus, congratulations, you've been raised, you will die again. And it's, but the next resurrection is going to be even better. It's going to be even more fulfilling. It's actually going to be what you were made for, which is eternal life with God. This resurrection that you just got to experience, hallelujah, that was great. Jesus was just getting started. That's the sort of promise that is being offered in Christ, these better, better promises. In the story of Daniel, that was referenced probably in the, the mouth of lions and in quenching the power of fire. Maybe you remember those three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say this to Nebuchadnezzar before they, he puts them in the fire. They say this, if this be so, meaning if you're going to put us in the fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See what they say? That sort of faith that says, yeah, we, God can actually save us and deliver us from this. He's definitely not going to deliver us into your hand, even if your fire works and kills us. 
were still not delivered into your hand because he alone is the king of kings. That's pretty wild. Of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus, of course, being the prime example, he says, talking of himself, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay down his head. Clearly, the world was not worthy of him in the way that we treated him. There's a better story being told. And then our passage ends with this pretty incredible uh, statement. Abraham, Moses, all of these quote-unquote heroes, they were commended, but they didn't receive what was promised because God had prepared something better for us. Why? That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so... The dignity that we are given in this Christian story is perfection. And I don't know what else to say about that. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's saying in the context of the law, and he's trying to get the Pharisees to realize I have no hope in my own works. But in Christ, this is still a promise, and it's actually a theme in the book of Hebrews. The word perfect and perfection keeps coming back. It says, you have, having been sanctified, you have been perfected, or will be perfected. Or, I mean, it's, it's so real to the book of Hebrews, because faith is a conviction of the things not seen, that because Jesus has been perfected, and he is our forerunner, so we are connected to him like a boat forerunner, I don't know if you remember that image. It's as if we are able to taste this sort of perfection. How good do the promises have to be for us to trust them? So this sort of faith is active. This sort of faith acts. It dignifies. And then the third and final point I want to look at Excuse me. It unifies the story that you're in. It, I, I kind of struggled with figuring out the best wording for that. But what I mean is it is purely focused on God and God alone. It is unmixed. It is not distracted. It has one focus, one center. And I want to look at that, especially through what we see with Abraham. So going back to Abraham, I think we can be really confused with what happened. So Abraham, if you remember, very, very old, him and his wife, Sarai, and then Sarah. Very, very old. God promises, I'm going to give you a child. The child is going to be the key to the blessing of the entire world, your generations, families of the earth. Hallelujah. It's a great promise. Then, yada, 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 go and kill this child. Sacrifice him the place where I tell you. So now he has a promise of God that this child will be this blessing, and now he has a command Romans 4, describing the same episode, says, No unbelief 
made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In our passage, we're told Abraham seems to have some sort of faith that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. And I want us to realize what this faith is doing. This is an important nuance, all right? So, so wake up. Let's think. He's not saying something totally contradictory. He's not saying A is not A. Meaning, he's not saying, I'm going to kill, but in killing, that's actually life. He's not saying something like, we can believe whatever we want because we know God's power is infinite. And sometimes we can take it that way. It's not that. It's not believe whatever you want. He believed he was going to kill Isaac, but he didn't care what he did because he had some sort of faith in God. That's not it. And it's important that we realize that. What it is is that he was so focused on God, he was able to look at those two things, the promise and the command, and say, God does not lie. God does not lie. This appears to be a contradiction to me. I'm not able to reconcile how it's not a contradiction. But I do know that God does not lie, and he has told me two things. He will bless the world through Isaac, and I am to kill him. Meaning, he was trusting in God and his word, not according to what he could see or have in the moment or figure out, but according to faith. So an example maybe in our own life is we feel like we are experiencing something that is contrary to God's love of us. So either we can say, oh, I guess God doesn't love me after all. But we already know that's not true. We know that can't be true because of the way Christ died for us. So if that can't be true, then the way I'm reading my experience has to be false. You see what happens there? When you're able to say... God doesn't lie, full stop. Then that gives you this conviction of what you can really trust. All right, so let me, let me try to give, give an example. So what does God actually say? We have to be very clear on what are the promises and what are not the promises. Because I think... We can, our, our sort of issues can be boiled down to two problems. Either we trust or expect things God never promised in the first place, or we don't actually trust and treasure the things that God did promise. You see that? Either we expected God to act in a certain way, and he never told us he was going to act that way, or we don't trust, realize, or treasure the way God actually said he was going to act. So, for instance, what is not a promise from God? What should we not trust or expect? The American dream is not a promise from God. 
that we will succeed in the American dream, that it's the true story of the world. Success according to whatever our dominating worldview says, if you do X, Y, and Z according to this school, that is not a promise from God. To have a white picket fence and a nice family, that is not a promise from God. To have people like you is clearly not a promise from God. That's a hard one for me. The things that are not promises of God, we have no right to expect. You get that? As a Christian, we have no right to expect. And then we can also be free from not worrying about them. Because he didn't promise to them anyway. We may get them, we may not get them, but it's kind of like water under the bridge. But the things that God does promise, and God does not lie, those are the things we can expect. Those are the things that we can actually trust and try and try and try to treasure. Last time, when I was preaching, I mentioned those five benefits in this life that we are promised, according to Westminster. I'm sure you all have memorized them, but in case someone's here new. Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, perseverance to the end. Those are all amazing. But I want to mention another aspect that I think will help bring this home a little better. In Westminster chapter 20, it's talking about the liberty of the Christian Christian freedom. And it says, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in, and notice how they just phrased it, by the way. It's been purchased, meaning this is yours now. Take it. Christ died for this. Okay. Christ died for their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of of the moral law. It doesn't curse us anymore. It doesn't condemn us. And they're being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin. You're no longer in bondage to Satan. From the evil of afflictions, not afflictions themselves, from their evil. They're not going to win. We know they're not going to win. From the sting of death, not death itself, but its sting, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. Also, their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. I would encourage you to go back, however you access Westminster, chapter 20. If you're not experiencing any of those, if you're not experiencing one of those, then get to work, meditate on it, figure out why not, talk to someone about it, because this has been purchased for you in Christ. This is what we can experience daily. This is not just for the extraordinary saints or Christians. This has been purchased. This is inherent in the atonement. That's what I mean when I say that this story, this sort of faith, unifies the story. It puts us all in 
on one thing, on God. And so this pure, sincere, single-minded faith can say something like this to God. God, I will live by what you give and what you promise alone. And I will forsake any other expectation, any other feverish pursuit of anything else. I won't expect it. I won't be consumed by it because you never promised it to me in the first place. Are we willing to say that? Do we have that sort of faith? Or are we trying and succumbing to all of the rival stories that are in our life, that in our world? What can be more motivating, active, dignifying than this sort of faith. Let's pray.